You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have uh, Stefan Wachny, who's the founder and managing partner of a company called Energis. It's spelled I-N-E-R-J-Y-S.com. So, Stefan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? It's my pleasure. I'm doing very well. How are you? Good, good. Yeah. Tell me about uh, Energis. What's the premise of the company? Energis is a private equity fund that is tackling climate change. Um, basically, we're looking to invest in technologies that can bring down the cost of renewable energy, storage technology, water technology, uh, anything around agricultural technology. So all of the many facets that get touched by climate change. And our premise is that governments can only take us so far with subsidies. We really need to innovate our way into cost efficiency. Um, and so we're structured in a, in a way not only to fund these companies, but also to uh, invest in projects that use the products from our portfolio. And so we're very focused on commercialization of the tech companies because companies who get funding and then their products don't commercialize don't end up having an impact on climate change, nor do they appreciate in value and help the fund who invests in them make a lot of money. So to be a successful fund, you need to make sure that your companies are commercializing, and we're very focused on that. Well, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. How much do you think any one technology can have an impact on climate change? I mean, is it, you know, I know no one thing will solve it all, but what's the extent of, um, of what we'll need to really tackle a problem in your estimation? I know it's a general question. What's your thoughts there? No, but it's it's an important question to ask, and it kind of follows the arc of my career path because I started the first 20 years of my career founding tech companies and spending you know uh, x amount of years on let's say eight years on a company until you know it goes from you know its its inception to you know developing its innovations and products to commercializing and to eventually uh, having a profitable exit you know, either taking a company public or getting acquired. So that takes time. And when you're focused solely on making that one set of products the best, 
um, you can only have so much impact. So if you're trying to impact climate change, the only way I could figure out how to do it was to have a fund because then at least I could have um, multiple companies in a portfolio and I could be targeting, you know, the wind and be the best in wind turbines and then targeting, you know, solar technologies in all of the different areas of solar and be the best there and then seek to be the best in, you know, hydro turbines and extracting energy from oceans and new places that we didn't used to do it. So, you know, across multiple market segments, um, you can start to have a measurable impact on climate change. If you just do one thing, then of course, um, your impact, you know, can, can be restricted to that, um, which is fine. But, um, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time to solve the climate crisis. So ultimately, I think the impact we're looking to have is, you know, over and above just having a portfolio of great companies, um, we're trying to show a model of commercialization for clean tech that can then be copied by other funds. And we feel that, you know, the, the real scaling happens when uh, many funds with billions and hundreds of billions of dollars under management are investing more intelligently in clean tech you know in a way that actually commercializes as i mentioned the pain point has been commercialization so you know the the real answer to your question about how do you have impact um you know, I think is even at a fund level is just figuring out what is the way to invest intelligently in this market. Why is commercialization difficult? Is it because it's, it's still more expensive to use these technologies or is there other reasons for marketing? Yeah, it's not really because it's more expensive. That's, you know, that's a misperception some people have. But the technologies exist actually uh, out there today across multiple segments um, that are at, you know, grid parity or at, at parity with the uh, whatever the dirty alternative is, right? So the, the real issue is that this is a capital intensive industry. And so for customers to uh, buy a new product that isn't proven yet in the marketplace, they're taking, you know, a substantial cash risk in a way that they're not doing in other markets. So if I compare it to, let's say, social media applications or, you know, various other kind of tech plays that are software based, it's kind of light, it's capital light. So if you've got the next killer app in social media that's going to kill Instagram and you go and you get a couple of coders to, to put something together and then it goes viral and a bunch of people download it, um, investors can, you know, come in and, you know, fund a company like that and 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 you know even if it doesn't have significant revenues you can control the cost the you know to fund a company that makes a turbine that costs millions of dollars and that requires a customer to take a risk um being you know among the first customers um that's really been the pain point the pain point has been you know getting those first um early adopter proof points um to get larger mass market customers comfortable enough to make you know, significant bets. And from there, of course, it's a snowball effect, but it's about getting there that has been really difficult. That's what I was going to ask you is do you need large enterprises to use it or do you get several small ones? That's enough to get attention to larger ones. I mean, the answer is yes and no. 
if large utility companies start buying new technologies and start phasing out anything that's carbon heavy, this is going to be very, you know, faster steps to incremental impact. Um, but at the same time, we have a trend of distributed energy and other forms of kind of, you know, incremental um, growth of, of industries um, made up of a lot of, you know, sort of smaller players. And so if millions of customers that are smaller um, buy some new technology, then of course it has it has its own impact fairly quickly. So that's why it's it's really a bit of both. As the transition to distributed energy takes hold, we still need incumbent players to be buying into this industry for it to have proper scale. Which uh, technologies are you particularly excited about? Maybe that are less capital intensive, or at least they're more efficacious. That you think will be big winners soon. Um, well, one I mentioned uh, is the uh, the potential to extract energy from our oceans, and the the attempt at tidal hydro. So we don't think of this very often. We think of hydroelectricity as um, damming up a river and then creating an artificial flow of water that can turn a turbine. Um, that building of a dam and all of the engineering around that is quite expensive, and that's very old technology. But um, engineering uh, companies and, and you know various scientists have, have analyzed the resource available in the oceans, in the world's oceans, and it's really incredible. Every time uh, an, uh, you know a, a tide rolls in and then rolls out in the sort of cycle of a lunar month, um, it's the most predictable form of renewable clean energy that exists, and it's extremely it's extremely environmentally friendly in that uh, you're not devastating the ecosystem the way that putting up a dam is. So while that sounds like a capital-intensive um, technology to put turbines in the ocean, the initial attempts were, in fact, quite capital-intensive, very monolithic design turbines, really big, giant ones. What we ended up investing in is something that we're very excited about. is a modular approach. So it's a whole bunch of small turbines that are a lot cheaper to build, and they stack row upon row on this platform that goes under the ocean, and then it can be lifted with hydraulics to the surface for maintenance. So even maintaining it is actually cheaper. So the capital uh, intensiveness of building the solution is cheaper because it's modular. Um, and then the maintaining of it for like 20 years of a project lifespan is also much cheaper because of this ability to just flow to the surface. Um, so we're very excited about about this you know new way of, of doing uh, ocean energy. We're also very excited about agricultural technologies that exist to green deserts using 60% less uh, water, which is very exciting because water is very expensive and is the gating factor in a lot of those dry, dry places. Because of climate change, we have more and more dry places. So think of the carbon footprint of sending food um, from far away to a dry place. It's much better if you could grow it locally. Um, also, in terms of local growing, we think about the urbanization of the world, and we've got more and more urbanization, right? People are living in cities. That's where they're looking to, you know, get jobs. So megacities, um, unfortunately, are still importing a lot, two-thirds of their food. And so the carbon footprint of um, food getting to you from far away is still a big problem in, in climate change. So we're very excited about a project and some technologies that we're investing in around vertical farming 
And so the idea that you could grow hydroponically and aeroponically using new technologies uh, in cities and reduce dramatically the carbon footprint. So it's farm to table, you know, you got a portal website, people can go from the city onto that website, order what was grown meters away from their homes, and it gets delivered directly to you. Um, healthier, more nutrient rich, and obviously better in terms of carbon footprint. So. There's a lot of things to be excited about in this uh, clean tech universe, but those are just a couple of examples of things that can really move the needle um, on carbon emission reductions and on um, averting a disaster of getting to two degrees of temperature increase. So our goal is really to stave off that that increase of temperature and, and cool things down. And those are a couple of examples of things that can do that. So what happens if you have a... Um technology, a new software program that makes uh, a current dirty fuel more efficient. How would you view that versus the technology that will use a clean fuel that could replace a dirty fuel? Like how would you and other investors view those, those two things? Maybe they both have the same efficacy, but one keeps the existing system in place. I mean, if, if the net result is that the dirty fuel is still is more efficient, but it's still emitting, um, you know, pretty significant amounts of, of carbon into the atmosphere, then I think it's a fool's errand. I think to spend time and money and effort on Band-Aid solutions, um, you know, is is not something that in 2020 we have the luxury of time to do. If, if you look at the science, um, we are squarely behind the eight ball, we absolutely need to um, increase quite drastically our investments in clean and green renewable um, energies, and not just energies, but the way we do manufacturing, uh, the way we do packaging, the way we do construction, the way we build cities, um, all of this has to be uh, with an eye towards eliminating the carbon uh, emissions as opposed to just mitigating them. In terms of capital, is, is there an unfortunate trade-off where the more different from current infrastructure and current systems and current fuels, you know, uh, technology wants to use the more capital intensive or is there not necessarily that correlation? No, I don't think that there's necessarily that correlation. I think, uh, you know, what we're looking for are um, out-of-the-box thinking companies that, that really defy the status quo of the way their particular thing is being done in their industry. So we look for, you know, a market that that exists, but we're always looking for disruptive technologies within within those markets. Okay. I don't know. Any, any other lessons learned in, you know, I'm sure you see a lot of technology plays to help the environment. What are the ones that you think will be sustainable or, you know, actually get into use? What hallmarks do they have versus the ones that you think are just, you know, they may be good ideas, but they're not really going to take off. I know that's essentially the big question you face all the time, but what have you noticed? Are there any commonalities in these technologies that make them work? Well, I mean, the things that are going to work are things that we can see um, practical uses for in the marketplace, and we can see early traction with existing customers. And then what we do is we take the ball and we run with it. So, you know, there's a company that we're investing in, for example, that makes um, LED lights for vertical farms. Uh, we know that we're building the world's biggest vertical farm, so we can represent a really large order, but we wanted to make sure that those LED lights for vertical farms already had um, a working product with existing vertical farming customers, which they did. And then we were able to come and be their biggest order um, to date. We look at the technology 
and we say, okay, what you know, what does this actually do? In their case, the technology can uh, use artificial intelligence to mimic solar conditions of specific places in the world, so that in a vertical farm, you know, that amazing basil that you had in the north of Italy that tasted better than any basil you've ever tasted um, can be reproduced in a vertical farm. Um, same goes for any crop that you can grow in a vertical farm. So you can create the solar conditions using technology. That's you know that's pretty cool, and it can be done. Uh, quite cost efficiently. So the lessons learned are you find a technology that's, you know, that's, that's already begun its commercialization. Um, and then uh, you, you know, you take it and, and you, you actively help scale that commercialization by implementing um, that into a project. So we, we, you know, we have that with off-grid solar. We do that, uh, you know, with a product called the iCabin um, as well, which can deliver uh, solar power to places that were off-grid previously, like in Africa and certain places or India where they didn't have power. So, you know, there's a billion people in the world that don't have access to electricity. That's quite a large market. And we have these these cabins that were, you know, sort of in pilot project and an early deployment in Ivory Coast when we came into the company. And then we helped the company to, you know, get incremental revenues um, from an existing customer in Nigeria and some other ones um, in other African countries. So we always, the lessons learned are find something that's beginning its commercialization and then find a way, uh, you know, to scale it to make an impact. What we try to avoid, because in lessons learned, you also look at things to avoid, you know, an industry that we looked at but saw just wasn't ready was wave energy. So as much as we're excited about tidal to extract energy from tides and from oceans that roll in and roll out, the idea that you can extract energy from the kinetic motion of waves is true in theory, um, but it hasn't been well commercialized. There have been many different prototype designs, you know, of different types. Uh, they all accomplish the goal, you know, in different ways, but they don't they don't get it to a point of scale or of cost efficiency to convince a customer to actively pay for the product and, and generate electricity. So, uh, you know, wave energy is one that we've been weary to enter because we just don't, we don't see the commercialization happening. Any other technologies that, I don't know, you think are just, they're way out there and if they succeed, it would be really cool. But right now they're, uh, they're amazing, but just again, like way out there in terms of uh, viability, you think. In the way out there category, <laughs> um, there are some, so the, the theory with wind turbines is that, you know, the higher they go, the more wind they can, they can capture. So that's why you see a lot of wind farms that go in elevation or go on mountain ranges. So what's higher than mountains? The air, right? So, you know, when, when your plane is going up, it's, it's jumping around left and right from the turbulence, right? There's a lot of wind up there. So there was a way out there idea to have uh, floating wind turbines, turbines that are literally up in the sky. You know, the, the, the reality of, of actually commercializing that and actually cabling it down to the earth and actually, you know, cost efficiently getting them up there and getting them moored and then making sure that, you know, uh, airplanes don't run into them and the, uh, you know, the flight paths to go around them. All of those logistical details make that a uh, more of a pipe dream at this point. But, you know, in theory, if you get turbines up there in the air, you know, they, they would extract a lot of more energy uh, for you. But that's more than science fiction right now. Okay. 
And then, um, you know, it's always fun to speculate about those things. What, what do you see as the trends? Are people in love lately with solar or, you know, geothermal or what? Is there any new trends over the next few years you think where a big push is going to be coming? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think um, vertical farming in, in urban environments is a huge trend. I think another really big trend is um, finding ways of, of, of extracting, of, of um, absorbing carbon emissions from various, like from buildings, from factories, from different places where carbon is being emitted into the atmosphere. You know, carbon capture and then sequestration or or actually turning it into a byproduct. So we have one company, for example, that is, is grabbing some carbon from the atmosphere that was going to be released into the atmosphere from like large buildings and turning it into potash and then ultimately into soap. You know, so so you've got you know you've got this this ability to create a byproduct and and stop the carbon emissions from going into the atmosphere. So that's another trend. And then finally, uh, I think the idea um, of I mean, of course, solar and wind are, are more mature markets, but making those more efficient all the time is very important. So there are trends within there are micro trends within those industries. And then in terms of uh, clean transport. I think the idea of electrified transport, you know, we see more and more now affordable electric vehicles and electric public transport and electric bicycles and electric everything, basically. Um, not even as many hybrids now, but really fully electric. Um, so I think that trend um, is it's it's passing its tipping point right now. Initially, it was like, you know, an interesting market potential, but still a lot of question marks and even successful companies, quote unquote, like uh, like Tesla, um, were still struggling to be profitable. But I think now that um, all of the large manufacturers in, in the transport industry have jumped on board with multiple uh, products, not just one token electric vehicle, um, I think uh, we really are past the tipping point. And what happens when you get past the tipping point is that the other part of the problem was the infrastructure. And the trend now is I think infrastructure is catching up. I think the charging infrastructure is going to become more and more uh, convenient. You'll be able to charge your vehicle in more places more rapidly with more cost-efficient and quick charging battery technology. So that's, you know, that's another major trend. You did mention geothermal. I think geothermal is another is another trend. Uh, I've used geothermal when I renovation of our house. Incredible what those geothermal holes and systems have been able to do in terms of um, reducing our energy consumption uh, in our in our home uh, and, uh, you know, lowering our energy bills. So I think people are catching on and I think the costs are coming down on geothermal to make it affordable um, at different price points for different types of homes. So those are a bunch of trends that, you know, that are, that are exciting us. Well, last question I want to ask you about solar, maybe because you're, you're, you know, you're more into the, this area of technology. Solar has been around for a long time and I know the price keeps improving, but do you see any like precipitous drop in price or, uh, becoming a lot more ubiquitous on you know, individual homes or businesses in the near future? Um, I think the one thing that can affect the price, you know, very quickly is um, a cost-efficient alternative to a solar panel that relies on Chinese rare earth minerals. So I think what we've come to realize is that China owns the majority of, of the world's stock of rare earth minerals that is a prime ingredient in solar panels. And if you can build solar panels that don't use rare earth minerals, therefore don't rely on 
the sometimes inequity of Chinese trade, right? To make sure that they're cheaper if they're manufactured in China. But anybody else who wants to make solar panels anywhere else has to pay a premium price. Um, if, if that inequity gets solved by uh, panels that are independent of those rare earth minerals, then you'll see the market be flooded by new kinds of panels using new polymer technologies. Um, and that has the potential to bring solar even lower down. And it still needs to go down. Even though prices have come down, um, a lot of solar deployments still rely on feed-in tariffs, and that's a form of subsidy. So if you remove the subsidy, it's less cost-efficient than you would think. So in order for it to become really a true no-brainer, I think uh, you know new panel technologies um, need to flood the market. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about Energists and you and your work? Uh, Energist.com, our website, I-N-E-R-J-Y-S.com. Uh, or just following us on Instagram, uh, Stefan Wachnin on Instagram, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-U-A-K-N-I-N-E, Stefan Wachnin, um, on social media, and uh, you know LinkedIn as well. We're always sharing information about you know what we find interesting we blog we talk about new trends and we of course talk about our investments so um you know we're always happy uh you know to to meet companies that are commercializing well and we're also always happy to speak to uh investors be they family offices high net worth individuals that are interested in impact investing or institutional investors of which we have a bunch they could be pension funds sovereign wealth funds they could be they could be university endowments but basically anybody who's interested in in investing in clean tech via a platform that uh, is commercialization focused and actually invest in projects that use the portfolio company's products to help them scale their, their own sales is an investor that we're happy to talk to. Very good. Well, Stefan, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Yes, with pleasure. Nice to meet you. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.